This is the Drunken Comedian Podcast with your host, Matt Hoss. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Drunken Comedian Podcast. It's 2018, it's a mystifying new year, and I hope you're having a good one. Uh, uh, if you've enjoyed our podcast in 2017, I hope that you enjoy this brand new year of podcasts. Um, it's not going to be that much different, uh, although we have some really cool guests lined up and some, uh, and I've been kind of revamping the podcast in some other ways. So if you notice some slight changes in the next couple of months, I'm just kind of revamping some stuff because um, although I really love this podcast, we are uh, just going to just change some things. I think we can make a little bit better. So yeah, it's, it's all look. It's going to 2018. It's going to be a tickety boo year. I'm not afraid to say it. Um, yeah, well, thank you for listening to episode 14. Um, and we have a really cool and really fun guest to start off 2018 with. Uh, and this is with the fantastic Matt Green. But before we get into all that, I uh, just want to say uh, just a couple of quick things before we get on with this intro. Like, you know, uh, firstly, uh, it's been a been really busy uh like December and January so far. It's midway January 2018 at the moment, and I'm doing tour support for Lee Kyle next week, which should be really fun. Uh, and I, yeah, I've started off a brand new project, uh, which I'll talk to you at the end of the podcast. And as I'm recording this, I am about to head out to the pub. Uh, so this is me pre-drinking, but I thought it would be quite good. In the theme of the podcast, I'm going to go out drinking uh, and come back and do the outro so it'll be like a slightly slightly more uh, rambunctious uh, me I say that, it's just going to be me but slightly slurred and slightly sad but apart from that it's it's a cool conceit um, so I'm going to get all the information out of the way first and then God, all the, all the importance of this cupboard but then at the end I can just, you, you can hear to what mess I'm in um, so you can follow us on uh, Twitter and Facebook at Trunk Compod. You can also uh, get in touch with us through there, like send us a message and uh, just say hello. Uh, also, you can uh, give us a five star review on iTunes if you want, uh, and you can you know just tell your friends about us. You know, just tell your enemies about us, tell your lovers about us. Uh, that was creepy, wasn't it? But also, uh, I wanted to say that I um, I've started off a brand new project, which is being released in the next couple of weeks. Well, another reason why I'm really busy at the moment is that I am releasing a brand new podcast called Myths. That's M I F F S. Me and my friend Dan Rhodes, we're starting a brand new podcast. We're talking about mythical things. It's really funny, and I really like the balance between this podcast and that podcast because this one's a bit more introspective and a bit chatty, and it's about uh, it's it focuses on uh, the comedian uh, as a person. However, the other podcast is really just inane fun as well. But this is also fun, but in a different... I think, like, uh, I'm going to say it in a more mature way. And I've already already regretted saying it. Anyway, let's crack on with episode 14. Um, so, as I say, you can keep an eye out for Myths. Uh, you can follow it at Myths Podcast. And just uh, give it a listen when it comes out next week. Well, I'll chat more about other stuff that's happened to me at the end. But uh, let's get on with episode 14. Uh, and... I'm really, really happy to have this guest. We recorded this in the autumn of 2017. Uh, Matt Green is a fantastic stand-up comedian. And on top of that, he's an amazing actor as well. He is a, a, 
incredibly funny guy, and I had uh, an absolute pleasure of um, meeting him. He was at the Newcastle stand uh, for a weekend, and just by chance, he was free, and I thought I'd just ask him to uh, uh, do this podcast, and it was a, it was an absolute treat. We, neither of us had met before this podcast, and uh, yeah, it turns... Uh, it, it was a really nice delight for me to chat to him as well, uh, and it was a, a pleasure to chat to him in this podcast. And we talk about a range of things like uh, how to deal with kids' gigs and teenage gigs, uh, and also his acting background. And also, for the comedy fans amongst us, you can hear about the backstage secrets and gossips of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which Matt Green appears in two episodes in. So you've got all that to look forward to uh, <laughs> in the next 45 to 55, next 55 minutes. Uh, yep, I'll see you at the end when I'm going to be partially pissed. Enjoy the episode, guys. Hope you're ready for our podcast today, and I hope you're ready for what we're about to say. I guess you can come play on a bus or a train, because we're going to go straight inside your brain. Get ready for the podcast. Yeah. Hope you're ready for the podcast. I bet you're ready for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you're probably ready. Enjoy the podcast. So it's still, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast, man. Thank you, nice to see you, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so we haven't met uh, officially before, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, and you're in uh, the stand at Newcastle. And, yep. And how was the gig last night? Uh, it was fun, yeah, it was nice. Uh, Friday night. Pretty chilled out, nice crowd. It wasn't too busy, but it wasn't sort of full of idiots. So yeah, yeah so it's good. Nice. And uh, so, are you uh, up in the north often? Or? Yeah, I mean, I'm based in London, so I don't travel up that often, just because there aren't that many gigs that can kind of do do up. You can do a whole weekend for, yeah. which I think you need to be able to do it if it's mm-hmm. worth. Uh, so I did the last laugh in Sheffield recently. Yes. That's a weekend. That's a lovely gig as well. Lovely gig, um, which I've not done before. And my parents live quite near. Um, they live in Wakefield, so oh, lovely. Sort of. Yeah. Um, they sort of. That's why I was. That's what I was brought up. So I kind yeah. of can. I can stay with them if yeah. I'm travelling in their north. And also, my in-laws live in Manchester, which is very helpful oh, yes. for comedy. Yeah. Um, so I've stayed with them a few times when I've done like the Frog or the the, yeah. uh, the Store or whatever. So yeah, I try. I mean, I try and come up north as much as I can but it's probably realistically only four or five times a year that I do it very often very and much. if you do have regular gigs in the south as well this, like, yeah, this, uh, yeah and the, you know just boring things like the pay is roughly the same in yeah. the north and the south which is fine but it means that you know yeah. there's a lot of travel costs involved if you come up here and you know but I, I'll always travel to places like the stand because A it's a lovely gig and mm-hmm. B you know they treat you nicely and, and the, you know it's Definitely. always a good thing to do so you know, I, I I don't I don't think you can be completely dogmatic about it about the money and stuff, but I think you just have to be a bit sensible. Yeah, totally. Um, I remember when I first started out. Well, because uh, I, I I am based in North Yorkshire currently, but mm-hmm. I'm also based. Uh, uh, I used to uh, do comedy in the southeast, and I would travel just between the north and the south just so much, and it's yeah. like a five hour drive, it's and a long uh, way. and uh, for very little, well, if, if any pay. It's, uh, I remember one time I travelled up for a gong show once, and it was like yeah. it was. Uh, not worth it. But look, then again, I did get to like go home for a night or whatever. But uh... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think when you start out doing comedy, the first two or three, or even longer than that, but certainly the first two or three years, are basically you learning how to do it yeah. in front of an audience. And so you, you don't get paid very much at all, if, yeah. if ever, really. Um, and 
and that does make it difficult for some people depending on where they live and what, what their financial situation is not everyone can afford to do that yeah. and that means that you probably slightly select young people who have a bit of financial security via something or other mm-hmm. whether it's a job or parents or whatever and therefore but I don't see any way around that really you know the yeah. system is you can't train to be a comedian apart from the very basics yeah you can do the very basics but once you've learned you know how to hold a microphone and roughly what a joke looks like <laughs> you've kind of got to do it all in front of an audience yeah, that's what yeah. that's the job is learning in front of and you know we're still I've been doing it a long time and still you're still learning every time you know? yeah it's um like there's a lot of comedy courses around at the moment, and uh, I'll be honest, my, uh, I did a master's in stand-up comedy, which kind of allowed me to start doing stand-up, but yeah. again, um, they kind of, it was kind of like, they, they fast-track you to kind of skipping a couple of do's and don'ts, but equally, the large part, it's like when you pass your driving test, you, the, yeah. the, the most part of the learning is after you've passed the test, isn't Absolutely, it? and I know that very well, because yeah. I, I, I only did my driving test a few years ago. Oh, really? Like, I only learned, um, in 2000. 13 or something, okay. 12, 13. Um, so I spent a long time as a comic not being a driver, which oh, is yeah, weird. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's doable, but you do have to you have a lot of lifts yeah. and you have to rely on the kindness of strangers and, uh, and you know, get used to the night buses and yeah. stuff. And so after a while, I kind of decided I wanted to learn. But learning to drive when you're in your 30s, it turns out it's quite difficult and expensive, you know, uh, particularly in London. Very expensive and also just took me ages, took me absolutely ages to learn, you know, took me several months to kind yeah. of get it. But now, you know, once you get it, it's fine. But it did take, and it was, it was the first time I had to, you know, learn a skill yeah. for a long time um, that was difficult and that I was going to be judged on and yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. But you're absolutely right. Once you pass your tests, that's when the actual, yeah. you know, learning begins. And it's, I think it's the same with comedy that those first few gigs it's just you checking whether you can even stand on a stage yeah. and then, then the learning begins yeah uh, and uh, talking about first ever gigs well what was your first gig and how did it go down well um, well I mean I, I, I'd done kind of comedy stuff at school I'd done like um, I'd written and performed in sort of sketches at school yeah, and, yeah. and at, um, I did a lot at university a lot of sort of drama and comedy stuff at university so my first you know being a stand-up probably was at university, but I wouldn't count that really because I think that was still me. It was probably more of a monologue, really, and it yeah, was, you yeah. know, um, wasn't probably me being myself. And I'd done sort of comparing introduction, you know, hosting yeah, shows yeah. a bit. So my proper beginning of stand-up was sort of 2003, um, and it was just a gig in a pub, you know. And it was it was at the time I think I started just before the real rush, started, yeah, you know, yeah, the sort of yeah. probably. Live the Apollo started in 2005, yeah, six, yeah, I think, 2005, maybe. 2005, yeah. And that's when it really, there was a massive increase yeah. in um, numbers yeah. of people wanting to do comedy. Uh, comedy courses boomed. There were a few comedy courses then, but far fewer than there are now. Um, and it felt like there were lots of people trying to do comedy, but nothing like the same as, <laughs> as yeah. now. And I just, it was a mirth control gig. I just, you know, I rang the guys at mirth control, emailed them, I can't remember which way around. Um, and they... And I said, oh, I've done some comedy stuff at university. So, you know, I didn't have it. I didn't know what to say. But yeah. they said, sure, come along, do a 10-minute spot. And I did 10 minutes, I think, for my first gig. Oh, wow. And for my second and third gigs, I think, I did 10 minutes. And then, then I went back to doing five minutes. You know, people kind of... Yeah, yeah. It was a, a bit less... I think even then it was a bit less sort of regimented. I get the feeling now that there's... 
when I talk to sort of newer acts that there's a kind of like a almost like a system now like you do your five and then mm-hmm. you do your seven and you, then it was a bit more chaotic you know people yeah. would give you a five or maybe a ten or maybe a seven or a, you know you didn't quite know how long you were doing sometimes and you didn't have to bring friends or you didn't have to yeah. pay to, oh, for the privilege all that stuff which is now apparently a bit more of a thing yeah like it's it's, it's an awful uh, um, well there are bringer gigs so you have to um, the comedians have to bring the audience with them yeah uh, uh, which, like, uh, I, I say, I used to, I started doing my first gigs in Kent, and all the bringer gigs were in London. So that would mean I would have to pay for my travel to London and also my friends' travel. Wow, there. that's insane! But, yeah, yeah, and it's just like it's just it's, like I, I, it wasn't feasible to do it. No, you know what I mean, for like course. five minutes as well. I don't. Know, I mean, I, and also, I mean, I had a few. I think at that very first gig was in London, and I did bring a few friends with me, like two or three friends, just to sort of for sort of moral support. Mm-hmm. But after that, I didn't want my friends to come and see me do comedy for a long time. Yes, you know, yes, for several yeah. years practically, you yeah. know, until I was doing full sets and mm-hmm. felt confident. Because, yeah, you, you, A, that you don't know how good you are, but also the shows are pretty rubbish often. And you don't know what the audience is going to, you know, it could be 10 people in a pub and you don't want your friends to be half of those yeah. people because that's awkward. And yeah, definitely. I'm very happy for them to come and see me do you know, play the comedy store or play the stand or play the Glee or, you know, some of these gigs where there's like a hundred people there or yeah. more or two, three, yeah. four hundred people because then they can just sort of be in the background and they're part of the crowd yeah. and that's fine. But when it's like, when you can see them, you know, yeah. there's, there's ten people in the room and they're half of them, it's not much fun. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, um, like, having that, I mean, like, I hate having friends watch me even now. It's mm. like, I don't, not really a fact, like, because when I first started out there was this particular gig uh, I was in London um, and it's like a really nice bill as well I think uh, Eric Lampier was headlining as well okay. I was quite new to it um, yeah, yeah. but I still had the, the ego of quite a I, was, I thought it was like the Dos Bollocks yeah. so to speak well it's, I think in a way you sort of have to to begin with yeah, yeah everyone has to have that sort of like I'm pretty good I'm, I, reckon, I reckon I could do this because <laughs> yeah. otherwise why would you do it yeah you know? totally yeah. and you have to then sort of learn as you go along that you're not as good as you thought you were but you're still alright you know and then that's how the well, yeah, because um, well, my first gig I did okay. The second gig I did pretty well, but that's it was a very friendly audience, yeah, yeah. and uh, they were totally on like my side to begin with. Uh, and, but so in the period between the second and third gig, my my head was so so full of like yeah, I'm yeah. a comedy. I've sorted it. I've conquered comedy. Yeah. Then the third gig was perfect because it's just one of the worst gigs I've ever done in my life. Because yeah. it just I needed that just to kind of bring me back down, so to speak. But um, with this gig, I, uh, I was in London, uh, really good bill, and uh, I t- was told a week beforehand that uh, Steve Bennett was going to be there, who's going to oh, be reviewing it, and, right, okay. uh, and I was like, okay, can I bring out the best material? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I thought, I'm bringing some friends along, some friends I'm seeing from, like, uh, I finished my A-levels for a long time, mm. uh, and they're the kind of friends that um, I did really like, but I didn't really speak to that often, yeah. so, so I brought them along, and every app that night, they... Um, the, the compass smashed it all the acts were doing great and yeah. I was like oh this is going to be easy this yeah. is going to be fine uh, and I kind of went on stage too cocky and uh, yeah, I just started doing the material just didn't connect whatsoever yeah. they just yeah. uh, and then I panicked and then I was just like uh, just a bit of a nervous wreck on stage yeah. uh, and one of the worst things I came off stage and I felt awful but the worst thing is my friends pretending it was okay if you know what yeah, I mean yeah. which is like I understand why they do it because social politeness yeah, yeah, like, oh you, you want to be supported but I just like we all know that it wasn't good but we all have to pretend that it was if you know yeah it's just, horrible and I mean that's hard that's even hard in you know in a green room when everyone's having a nice time or, or even no one's having a nice time you know 
is that sort of like what do you say? How do you only if you're really good friends with an ex can you be? Yeah. Can you are you able to be a bit honest about it sometimes? Yeah. You know, if they've had a tough one or you've had a tough one. But normally there's that sort of bravado because again there has to, as you say, there sort of has to be a bit. And I think the difference between I've always felt the difference between people who who will be sort of perennial people on the open spot scene mm-hmm. who probably won't ever go and make a living from it, and those who do, the difference is um, self knowledge. Yeah, uh, it's you know lots of other things like talent, working hard, all that stuff. But a big part of it is self knowledge, the ability to actually um, accurately yeah. <laughs> sort of uh, you know measure how you did yes, in a gig. Definitely. Like if you had a good gig, to be able to go great, I had a good gig. Why was it good? What were the things that went well? What should I do again? And if you had a bad gig, why was it bad? And not blame the audience, not blame the room. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those things are massively important. Yeah. But there's always something you could have done better. Definitely. Maybe you couldn't have smashed it, but there's something you might have changed, or was there a bit of the material that you stumbled over, or did you talk to the wrong person in the audience, or whatever it is, and be able to accurately sort of gauge your own ability. And I think people who are really good and have got good very quickly are the ones who are able to do that very quickly and they sort yeah. of evolve quick their their evolutionary sort of you yes. know ability is, is high and there are people who I've who I remember working with you know doing open spot gigs mm-hmm. 10 12 13 years ago who I occasionally bump into still if I'm doing a new material gig or something and they're still there and I and I see them they're, do, they're doing some of the same jokes oh wow in some of the same way you know and they're coming off and it's sort of still not really working and they but they've but they've kind of either they're incredibly lazy yeah and they're just doing it as a hobby which is fine yeah you know, that's yeah. that's fine but if they still you know there's some of them that are so angry with themselves almost and you think what and they're like well I didn't I don't know if that's worked or, or they kind of are so deluded they're like oh I smashed that and you think no you didn't yeah, you know, yeah. in no world did you smash yeah. that and that and the fact that you think you did means that you will never be able to actually smash a gig because yeah. you you know you you don't know what the difference between a good gig and a bad gig is. Totally. Um, in fact, there's some of the when you mentioned that there's so many people or a, a couple of people spring to mind who uh, who consistently uh, die in their ass every single gig, but they blame they 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 always blame someone else. Yeah. Like they never take it upon themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's where failure lies as well. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I'm not, I'm by no means a uh, sort of, uh, someone who thinks that that's always the case. I think sometimes, you know, audiences are awful. <laughs> sometimes yeah. rooms are terrible. Yeah, and totally. sometimes there is sort of nothing you can do. But those times are relatively rare. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that even when you've had a terrible gig, nine times out of ten, there's something else that you could have done. Totally. You, know, you could have been better, yeah. um, and and we've all had those experiences where you have a gig which is, you know, adequate yeah. or even not great, and you come off and you think, oh, I sort of think I probably did what I could there, and then someone else will go on and have a great gig, mm-hmm. and there's always part of you thinking, oh well, that's just because I warm them up, sort of thing. But yeah. the reality is, they just in that evening they're better. They yeah. did a better job. They they read the room better. They had better material. Their energy was better. Whatever it is. Yeah. They, they suited that room better. And sometimes you just have to hold your hands up and go, okay, that wasn't really my gig. You know, I, I'm, the kind of material I do wasn't really right for them or whatever. Yeah. But if you're a professional and you do it for a living, actually, you've got to have different gears sometimes. And you've got to be able to change yes. the material sometimes and not, not necessarily kind of pander to a room if they're all awful racists yeah. or whatever you don't want to just, you know, if, 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 you, if you walk into a room and you sort of get a real sense that they're all 
they want you to just do horrible jokes, yeah. then maybe you know you don't do that. But you, there's a way of maybe turning what you do in slightly in a way that makes yeah. them accept it. Um, and if you walk into a room, and you feel like they're all very radiophone listening sort of arty types then again there's a way of maybe slightly changing what you do to make that more appealing and not change the, the, the heart of what you do but kind of give it a bit of a spin so that they go for it you know? yeah and I think that's really important it's like um, it's like you have the same material but you have to give it a different hook to kind of uh, yeah and even if just simple things like energy and sometimes you know I go on and I'm kind of try to be more high status than other times other times I'll try and go in at a slightly lower status or even, you know, very, very simple things like swearing or not swearing. Yes. You know, there are some rooms where you realise quite early on that being a bit sweary and being a bit sort of swaggery is quite a good way of getting their attention. And mm-hmm. maybe there's some of those sort of higher profile sort of weekend shows. Sometimes, you know, there's a big group of stag parties or hen parties or whatever. Those, they require a bit more kind of authority from you mm-hmm. as a performer. And then other clubs, if you go in and start swearing and the audience won't like it you know they'll feel uncomfortable and they'll think what are you doing and if you can turn that on and off that's really helpful I think you know to yeah. be able to go okay today I'm going to be the more clean version of what I do and yeah. tomorrow maybe I don't need to be um, talking about clean sets and stuff like that uh, you uh, perform a lot for a comedy club for kids right, right? Uh, and uh, doing uh, t- tell me about how, how you approach those gigs and uh, well there I mean I, I really enjoy them but it's a different um, it's a whole different thing uh, and I think I find them quite nerve-wracking, basically because I don't do them that often. Yes. You know? yeah. Probably if I'm if I'm doing it if I'm got quite a lot of them in the diary, I'll still only on average do one or two a month mm-hmm. um, because they tend to be at the weekends, except when it's um, school holidays. You yes. might do one during school holidays or something. And in Edinburgh at the festival, they run every night or every every day. So I I probably maybe do one or two a week there mm-hmm. um, sometimes. But yeah, I mean it's um, it's good fun. I. It, Again, it's it's a bit like doing your first gig again. You sort of the first time <laughs> yeah. I did it, doing the first five ten minutes, it's kind of a bit nerve wracking because you walk on and you think, I don't know if any of this is funny for kids. Yeah. You know, I've got all the jokes that I started doing for kids were jokes that were in my adult set yeah. that I felt like might be appropriate for kids. Yeah, you know, obviously no swearing, nothing sexual, nothing you know <laughs> yeah. about politics or anything like that. But it's funny how quickly you go, okay, that bit doesn't really work for kids, but this bit really does, yeah. and therefore let's try and write something a bit like that and make it a bit... And now I've got I've got a sort of 20, 20 to 30 minute set of stuff. Probably about half of it is stuff that I used to do for adults, mm-hmm. and now half of it is stuff that I've sort of developed, which is mostly for kids, yeah. um, which is you know usually a bit more high energy and a bit more sort of about, about stuff kids sort of find funny about mm-hmm. animals and about... Yeah school days and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But for me, and I'm relatively, well, I don't know if I'm unusual in this, but I, I, I try quite hard to make the stuff uh, sort of accessible to both the kids and the parents. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, for me, that's when those gigs really take off, is when you sort of have both sides yes. laughing at the same time. Yeah. And if you, if you just focus all your attention on the kids, the parents get a little bit bored and a little bit sort of disconnected um, and actually the bo- those best gigs are when you know when everyone's having a good time yeah. and so occasionally I'll throw stuff sort of over the heads of the kids not in a horrible way but just sort of just little references little gags yeah. little asides and particularly it's particularly fun to do that when, when you're talking to the kids when you're doing some interaction that you know kids come up do you know as, as the cliche goes they do say the funniest things and, yeah. and sometimes they'll say something sort of unintentionally funny yeah, yeah. 
that's almost like a bit adult or yeah, something. Yeah. And, and if you're able to, even just with a look, yeah. or with a kind of, oh, okay, I'm yeah. not going to go down that avenue. You know, yeah. a kid will say something a bit inappropriate by mistake. Yeah. As long as you just acknowledge it and then move on, yeah. the, the, the audience enjoy that, the parents enjoy that, you know. That's, uh, yeah, that's uh, such a cracking answer because it's like it's kind of like um, doing a Simpsons, really, because you have to make it accessible for for both parties. As well, yeah, right? yeah, and, and and I think you know I would still say that I'm not you know sort of seventy to eighty percent focused on the kids, um, and obviously whenever I ask a question, I I try and sort of throw questions to the audience about the questions, simple questions that the kids will definitely have an answer for. Yeah. Um, and that's always, I'm never asking the adults that, you know, I don't care what they think about anything, the kids are the people to get in touch with, but it, yeah, just sometimes you can find things that, and, and it's just, it's fun, I think what I like to do is, is talk to the kids like they're adults as well, well. Yeah, yeah, that's totally. quite nice to sort of, I often do that, try to sort of, if I'm saying something to a kid, I'll be like, what, what, do you, what was that madam, or what was that sir, you know, yeah. even to a six-year-old you know yeah. and it, it a it's quite funny to yeah. do that and also i think it, it 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 kind of gives the kids a bit more respect perhaps and you don't you and they can feel that yeah because even even fairly young children they sort of can feel when they're being patronized and when they're you know Ooh, all right lady, you know kids what what do you think then kids and yeah. that sort of sing-song voice yeah that, yeah that children's entertainers have whereas i think that's the whole point about comedy club for kids is that it isn't that it's, yeah. yeah it's stand-ups who are, st- who are adult stand-ups doing stuff that is relatable for children but that's that's the only difference you know? yeah and uh, um one of the first things i learned from doing those gigs is to it, like you you've got to talk to them on the same level because if the moment you start speaking down they're going to lose interest as yeah well. and, and it's funny how you know when i started doing it i assumed i because i don't have children I, and um certainly when i was starting doing it, i didn't have that many friends who had children you know i didn't know what their sense of humour would be and I sort of assumed it would be slightly kind of more silly and sort of pun based or something and that yeah. they'd enjoy knock knock jokes or something and actually although they kind of don't mind them but <laughs> they often don't really get those kind of jokes it's not really yeah. you know it, it's not really their thing whereas if, if you just are talking about stupid stuff that's happened and asking them about what their favourite kind of animal is or whatever, you know yeah. there are ways of making funny things happen in the same way that stand-ups don't tend to just go on and go not not who's the you know yeah there's a bit of you know one liners are still a thing but you've got to couch them for most acts there's got to be some context to it otherwise mm. it doesn't really make sense and I think children are just the same as adults in that way totally um yeah that's uh it's well it's, it's good great to hear that uh, well the thing is with those gigs is that, um I, I say people kind of assume that people are going to go on stage and be uh, like a children's kind of entertainer make yeah. it very like a patronizing kind of yeah. oh hey what we're we doing today kid but um every gig i've seen has always been is literally the same uh but just sillier if you know what i mean yeah uh, it's you know more high energy yeah and, and and there is something it you know those are the only gigs that i do where i consistently write my material on my hand yeah just because um even though i you know i've done them, quite a lot of them now just because if something goes in a weird direction mm-hmm. and you spend five minutes talking about something mad, yeah, which is fun and I like doing that and that's always a good thing to do. If you then want to bring it back to your material, actually, often your brain won't be giving you the right information. Yes, <laughs> because when you're doing a, you know, as an adult comic, you know, I've always got two or three bits of material sort of in my head at yeah. any one time. 
that I can always go, right, if that's not working, I'll do this bit. And if this isn't, you know, I, I, I've got my sort of emergency jokes, as it were. I don't think of them like that, but that's what happens. Yeah, you know, if you yeah. think, if, if, I'm, if I literally have a proper mind blank, or if someone says something weird and I, and I think, I can't remember where I was in my set, I'll just do that bit and then mm-hmm. I'll, I'll fight, I'll work it out. Yeah, yeah. But when you're doing kids' gigs, all those kind of emergency bits are not appropriate. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the joke, it, you think, oh, I can't do that bit, that's not, that's not appropriate. And then suddenly you think, oh, God, what, what is my kids' material? And yeah. it's easy to sort of lose yourself. Yeah. Um, so I always write it down I mean I haven't had to use it that often where I've had to really look at my hand but I have been a couple of times where that was really helpful where I thought otherwise I'd be sitting there going I can't do this bit I can't do that bit where you know what's going on have you ever uh, had any mishaps uh, in terms of saying something you shouldn't have on stage in those gigs not really no I mean a couple of times I've sort of mildly sworn yeah but never a big swear word oh yeah you know I've said piss or something or Something like that, because I've been talking about someone weeing or something. Yeah. I've said piss instead of we, you know. And I did that a couple. Of, I did that once. I remember doing that once, and then sort of immediately changing, you know, yeah. and not not apologising it, but just because I I said it so quickly, and then I sort of immediately changed what I was saying. Yeah. Something else. And a, and a woman, <laughs> and I remember a parent came up to me after the show and said uh, uh, something like, um, "Oh, well done for for not saying, you know, for sort of reversing on saying piss." <laughs> I was yeah. like, I thought you'd. I thought people wouldn't have noticed, but yeah. people, of course, they notice everything. Well, um, but no, I've, I've seen a couple of mishaps uh, with people accidentally swearing or, or mm-hmm. something, uh, and I've heard about some pretty bad mishaps where people have said something really inappropriate, or they've got kids up on stage and then the kids have done something bad and they've oh, not really yeah. been able to deal with it. And so I've been. I mean, I, I did a, I did a kids show a few years ago at a venue uh, in Norwich, which is really. Uh, no, not Norwich, um, Ipswich, um, uh-huh. which is really nice venue actually, uh, the New Wolsey Theatre, and it's and they used to run, I don't know if they still do, but they used to run uh, like a kids show and then a sort of teenager show. Okay. Um, so the kids show went well, and then the teenager show is like people from like fourteen to eighteen sort of thing. Okay. So it was a slightly odd, and sort of part of the the idea of the show was that it was like no adults allowed okay. apart from the staff at the venue. So yeah. it's kind of. Um, it was an interesting concept, and I think it, it kind of it did kind of work. And you were allowed to be allowed to do whatever you wanted, material-wise, but you obviously couldn't be too graphic or horrible because people would. I think maybe the kid, even the kids would, would enjoy it. It felt wrong. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you didn't want to come across as creepy. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I was I was comparing it, and um, at the beginning of the second section, so it was in three sections. I sort of was like, you know, who's what? What have you been doing in the interval then? Because I suddenly thought, they obviously haven't been opening the bars because yeah. you know you can't drink, <laughs> and they and they all were like they'd all been eating sweets, so there were just sweets everywhere, yeah. you know. And I was like, oh, you're all eating sweets, okay, cool. Um, and then I did some stuff about sweets or something, and then in the second, and then I brought brought an act on, and then in the third section, I came on and said, so who who's got some more sweets then? And someone threw some sweets onto the stage, like uh-huh. a packet of sweets. And I was like, oh, right, someone's thrown some sweets on the stage. And then everyone threw their sweets at me. Oh, okay, yeah. And it's a big room, it's about 400 people, uh, and, they, and it's one of those sort of raked seating. Yeah. So it was like just, you know, an avalanche of sweets suddenly, just like, you know, onto the stage. And they were all getting a bit hysterical because yeah. it was like suddenly they were like, oh, we can... And there were sort of no, no adults to stop us doing this. Oh, and, God, yeah. And it was like, it wasn't... They weren't being horrible. They were, you know, it wasn't like a nasty thing to do. They were just a bit giddy. Yeah. But it was suddenly a bit like, oh, okay, this is actually slightly dangerous now, you know. 
And I, for a couple of, for a few seconds, I was like, no, don't do that, don't stop. And then I kind of just left the stage. Yeah. I thought, I don't want to. And they kept throwing stuff on. And I was like on the mic backstage going, all right, guys, that's not okay. All right, stop yeah. doing that now. <laughs> it's, it's weird to have that off. Like, are you allowed to tell them off? But well, exactly. And I was like, I have to, I sort of have to be the teacher now. Yeah. But then what was lucky for me was that then people started sort of getting a bit stupid and started throwing other things onto this, like their bags and stuff, oh, which was kind of like, well, I can't, I've got to stop this happening because this is mad. But there was a girl right in the front row who threw her shoes onto the stage. Okay. And, and what, in a weird way, that sort of helped because I then went, went on, picked up the shoes, and went, are these your shoes? And she was like, yeah, yeah. And I went uh, over to the... Um, fire exit opened the fire exit and threw the shoes out <laughs> and just went right fetch you know yeah. go and get them and that sort of focused the attention on her and the audience all thinking she looks silly and then that was funny and then and so by then I was able to sort of calm everyone down a bit yeah. and and say right don't do not do that anymore uh, and then the final act was Tiff Stevenson I remember and she came on wearing a hard hat <laughs> that she'd found backstage which was funny yeah that's cool um, and it sort of you know the whole show sort of wrapped up nicely um, but yeah, the staff backstage were hilarious because they were just like, what do we do? What do we do? And I was just like, it's okay. it's going to be okay, but we yeah. just need to, anyway, let them do this and then we'll, um, <laughs> but that was because that was interesting because that was, you know, just teenagers. It wasn't, there weren't any adults around to yeah. kind of calm them down. The kids gigs can go hysterical a bit sometimes, but they tend to be a bit less like that because in the end, the audience does have adults in it. And as long as the adults are, that's why for me, the absolute key thing about kids gigs is. You, you have to mix the kids and the adults. They have to be oh, together. Oh, yeah, and that's it, yeah. Um, and some venues, they put all the kids at the front and the adults at the back, and those are a nightmare. Yes, you know, it's that's, like a fair pit. Yes. It's impossible. It's like having a mosh pit at the front. <laughs> and, and, and nine times out of ten, it's just impossible to play. The kids just run around. Yeah. Because well, that's what they want to do, and that's, you know, that's... It's not, you can't blame them. That's fun. It's more fun to just run around with your friends. But I think that that same concept applies to the teenage kids. Because if you're there with all your friends at the front, you're going to be a bit more sillier, mm-hmm. and there's no one to stop you from doing that. So uh, at uh, that teenager gig, that does sound like um, they, all their friends are like, oh, this would be funny. So and, and no one's telling them that they shouldn't be doing that yeah. as well. So, uh, but it's nice that you have to be the authoritative. But you have to be. Yeah. You have to parent them. Yeah, all. you have to. You have to be the teacher. And sometimes that's that's as a compare in any gig. You sometimes have to be the teacher. Yes, you know? totally. Yeah. You sometimes have to be the one. And so you know, it's it's annoying when that happens. But particularly, you know, the sort of notorious or Christmas gig season where oh, yeah. there are loads of massive groups of office parties and stuff. Very often, you often you have to be if you're the compere, you have to be the the authority figure. You have to go on and try and be their friend. But if they're not listening, you have to be quite hard yeah. and quite sometimes just not funny at all. Just like literally stop doing that. You stop doing that. Yeah. Like shut up, listen. Yeah. And then you know the number of times I've done Christmas gigs where as a compere you come off at the end of the show and you think. I haven't really been funny at all, yeah. but I have at least done my job, which yeah, is yeah. get the audience to listen to the acts, and the acts have been funny, so but you know the job's done. You know, fundamentally, uh, as the role of the compare is to make sure that everyone's having a nice night. Yeah. Being funny is secondary, if anything. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it is. I think it is in those contexts. Yes. You know, I mean, I hate it. I, I would hate, and, and that's why Christmas gigs are pretty bleak if you do a lot of them in yeah. a row, <laughs> and they're all like that because by the end of the second week of Christmas, you know. You start thinking, why am I? What am I doing? This isn't my. This isn't what I'm doing comedy for. Yeah. You know, I didn't. I didn't decide to do comedy in order to sort of shout at drunk people. But for a couple of weeks a year, that kind of becomes your job sometimes. Yeah. You know, and that's frustrating. But yeah, if you do that every single week, I think it would get very. 
tiring. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I've kind of got some stock um, podcast questions. All right. Can I try yeah. some out with you? Let's do it. Okay, so uh, how would you describe your act in three words? Oh, okay, three words. Wow. Um, that's a good one. I, I, mean, I wouldn't do it very well. Probably storytelling, observational, interactive. Okay, maybe. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, so, um, what's the strangest heckle you've ever heard? Ever heard or ever had? Well, um, it's open, so uh, okay. maybe both. Yeah, heckles are funny, aren't they? Because um, it's actually quite rare that you get one that's really memorable, I think, because they tend to just be sort of things that happen in the moment and, yeah. and are sort of maybe funny in the moment, but then mm-hmm. afterwards you can't even remember what they said. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're often just sort of being stupid or... You know, or they're joining in, and that's yeah, fine. You know, yeah. joining in is fine. But again, that's sort of very context specific. You know, I remember hearing one the other day where someone was sort of moaning about their mum um, doing a sort of thing about I can't remember. I, I actually genuinely can't remember what the joke was, but it's something about you know them not being able to use the internet or something like that. Yeah. You know, kind of, oh God, I always have to teach my mum how to use the internet or something. And someone shouted out, "She won't be around forever." Oh, okay. and I love that because it was sort of. It was playing along, yeah, but it was also sounded sort of weirdly threatening. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. Well, part of my act is just like getting people involved. It's very mm. engaging, uh, not not in the way of like bringing people on stage, yeah. but just just involving people. And uh, uh, I love it when people want to join in and stuff like that. Uh, but um, when I see inexperienced compares or people, uh, pe- people who want to join in and like, put, uh, like slamming them down unnecessarily. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think heckling is as big a problem yeah. as people think it yeah, is. You know, I mean, it's, that's yeah. the secret. That's the sort of unknown thing about comedy, isn't it? Is that anyone who works in comedy knows that there aren't that many heckles out there, really. Yeah. And there are, and there are lots of stories of these sort of great heckles of the past, but actually, you know, there aren't that many really memorable good ones that, that come up but I, I mean I love it when people similarly you know I love asking people questions as a compare and finding out interesting stuff about them yes, yeah. you know I always think you need to try to ask you know I tend to start with the fairly sort of basic questions but then to sort of ask things they haven't perhaps thought of before or mm-hmm. whatever and you, you just get and you just have to allow people to have their moment like I spoke to somebody the other day in a gig and I said what's your name and he said bam and I said <laughs> Bam, and, he, and then he told me his full name, which was an African a Nigerian name, was sort of a Bamalanga thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, that's a that's a harder name to remember. So yeah. Bam, I can I, I'll go with that. Um, thanks for that. You know, that's an easier name to remember for me. And then I said to him, uh, which I, I I gave him a, I asked him a question which I ask a lot of people whenever it's a name I don't know. I said, you know, do you know what that means? Where does that come from? And he said, it's a Nigerian name meaning follow me home. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the best one I think I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah. Like name me. So, so I've never. And, and, that, and then that obviously led to a whole yes, riff yeah, of like, yeah. wow, what could you call your kids and what you know and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I remember asking, you know, I had in fact I put a little video online about this because I, it happened to be a gig that records stuff, where um, I asked them what their name was and she said it was Innie, and I was like, well, what's that from? And she said, oh, it's Innogen from Innogen. I was like, okay, instead it's a Shakespearean name. And I looked it up and it turns out it is Shakespearean from Cymbeline. Um, and I said, wow, okay, and what does your... Do you have any siblings? And she said, yeah, Somerset. <laughs> As though they'd been going along, you know, the sort of English literature, the yeah. first one, you know, next one, geography, next yeah. one, maths. You know, and, it, and, and that <laughs> yeah. sort of yeah. thing you can yeah. kind of find. And, like, people don't often think about that. And that's one of my favourite responses, actually, is quite often 
when someone's got an interesting name, yeah. and you say, oh, where does that word, do you know what that means? And they say, no. <laughs> and I just think, how could you possibly have spent yeah. your life up to now not knowing what your name means? You yeah. know, like, it, and then obviously, then what I tend to do is go off and Google it and come back and tell them, you know? <laughs> and sometimes it's really funny, and sometimes it, you know, but it, I think that's the thing, that, that's what I like about interaction, is that you kind of, you, you, it's value-added, you're kind of giving them something they didn't already know. And, um, like, th- this doesn't happen all the time, but um, when I compa, uh, I like, like, you kind of create people in the room, you kind of... Yeah, uh, uh, characters, but, yeah. Uh, but you can create a narrative throughout that. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, and that, uh, it's one of the most sweetest things when it all pays off. Uh, I remember one gig, um, like, towards last Christmas, uh, um, there was this girl in the front row, um, well, it was, she, was like, you know, she was with a couple of friends, and... Um, uh, she, she cheered for being single earlier in the day, and I said, "Oh, maybe I can." Uh, it went along the lines of, uh, "Oh, I'll, um, we'll try and get you hooked up with some." Yeah. Like that. But then what happened is that um, uh, I I did a bit about a poem, and I said, "Oh, I'll, I'll write you a limerick if you want." Uh, and uh, then I came back on with the limerick yeah, and yeah. at the end of the show, and like it, it like it was nice because I yeah. had that kind of through line as well. Uh, yeah, and I think I think I think that's fun to do, and it's but also for an audience that's very satisfying because yeah. they know that there's no way you could have planned all that yeah you know? or, or rather if you had you'd be a genius yeah you know? and uh, those those things you know they just they're very impressive and, and they make it they make it unique they know that that's you can't ever do that exact thing again it, yeah they'll you know there'll be a version of that you might be able to do again yeah. but you know like the master of that is someone like al murray who you know when you see his shows he's he's got his character set up i think possibly slightly less now he maybe does this slightly less than he used to but i certainly remember seeing him sort of 10 years ago or something, or even longer, and he would just have his characters set up in his head, you know, of like, I need a posh person, I need a person like this, I need a woman like that, I need a bloke like this. And he'd obviously have all of those ready to go. So when he found someone, that was his thing. And then it meant that the whole show just felt so sort of organic and every every bit of material was directed at one of those characters and, and then they all kind of linked up by the end. And it yeah, it feels like you're watching something very special. Yeah. Uh, so if you mm-hmm. here's a here's a question: If you could flash hair with any three comedians, <coughs> dead or alive, in Edinburgh for an entire month, who would they be? Well, I'll do the obvious joke of saying the ideally alive ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. Who would they be? Well, that's a good question because I think I haven't lived with other people for a long time. <laughs> uh, it's been me and my wife for a long time, and uh, I'm not a huge fan of you know long term cohabitation with people who I don't yes. know very well. And I think Edinburgh is um, is such a uniquely stressful experience it when is. you do the whole festival. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done that a few times. I've done it many times, and staying with people. So I think they have to be people who are my actual friends who yeah. I would actually get on with. Because I think, you know, you could say someone, you know, like Bill Hicks, or yeah, that's whatever, and he'd be great to have an evening out with. Yeah, but I think after a few days, you'd be getting tired of his. Uh, Incessant political, yeah, you know, like, chat. Bill, I want to get to sleep. Yeah, yeah. just can you just stop it? Okay. Yeah, and maybe the uh, the drugs would get a bit overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess people who I you know I'm mates with, um, people who I would uh, hang out with. I guess like Brett Goldstein is someone. Yeah. He's he's a friend who I who I sort of haven't hung out with that much. So it'd be nice to to have a bit of time and uh, get to know him a bit better. Um, Simon Fielder lives around the corner from me, and oh, nice. uh, he's uh, he's a good friend. Joe Joe Bohr, uh, I write and um, sort of direct his shows at the moment, oh, so um, that'd be helpful. From a, although he has got a young child now, yeah. so that might be uh, <laughs> be less fun. 
Um, so how do you find that process of uh, writing and directing as well? Um, oh, it's good. I mean, yeah, I've always enjoyed the sort of editing process. I've always enjoyed helping people work on stuff. I'm quite, I quite enjoy collaborating um, with stuff. And, and, and that's one thing I miss when I'm doing just stand-up for a long time, when I'm not doing acting or mm-hmm. anything else. Um, it can get a bit kind of not quite lonely, but like isolated. You can mm, feel a bit like yeah. you're just doing your own thing. Yeah. You know, you're in your own bubble a bit. Um, and the sort of social side of it can be all right, but it's, it's quite nice to just writing with other people. And in the last couple of years, I've started doing that a bit more, just kind of meeting up with two or three different people and just sort of going, let's see yeah. what yeah. we come up with. And, and, and usually bringing material to the table and saying, okay, I've been working on this for a few days. What do you think? Or this bit doesn't seem to be working. What's going on with that? Um, but in terms of directing, yeah, I've, I've done a bit of directing. Yeah, I've done a little bit of TV directing now as well. Oh um, wow, great! Just sort of a pilot last year, which went quite well. Um, I don't, know if, I don't think it's being made into a series, but the process of making that was was really fun. That's and right. yeah, I think I think probably in the longer run, that's probably something I'd like to do a little bit more of. Is sort of yeah. be, be be behind the camera, as it were, a little bit more, uh, or behind the scenes a bit more, um, as well as doing you know performing. Um, so uh, obviously you act quite a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you find um, di- di- doing stand-up alongside acting as well? Um, di- di- is, obviously it's two different crafts, but um, uh, how do you approach uh, an acting job uh, as as opposed to a stand-up job? Uh, well, I mean, stand-up. I also think <coughs> stand-up as being like a it's an ongoing story. You know, you just you you're always working on stand-up, mm-hmm. um, and you're always coming up with new material and doing gigs and keeping sharp and um it's a kind of constant process Mm -hmm. whereas acting uh unfortunately for me uh from career point of view is much more stop start you you, you do a couple of days on something you do a week on something and then you don't do anything for a few months and Mm -hmm. then do another week on something so it's harder to kind of get that role obviously for some people who are lucky enough to act more then I guess it's more of a rolling thing um I mean one of the things I as I say one of the things I love about acting as opposed to comedy, is that it is collaborative. Mm-hmm. And you have far, in a funny sort of way, you have sort of far less responsibility for anything other than your own performance. Yeah. You just yeah. have to really focus on what you're doing within the context of the piece. Uh, and then you, and then everyone else's job is to help you do a good job with that. And, you know, you you have to trust the cameramen and the lighting guys and the sound person and mm-hmm. the, the director and the producer, you know, that they're doing their jobs mm-hmm. and you've got to do your own job. Uh, and it's quite yeah I, I like that sense of working on a thing together and and if you're doing a you know if I'm working on a comedy thing which I you know probably 80-90% of the stuff I do is comedy in some mm-hmm. way I quite like that feeling of going okay well I'll bring my experience of comedy to this yeah and if if they're up for it and open to it I'll suggest some new ideas or jokes or ways of doing stuff but actually, it's not my job to do that. You know, mm-hmm. my job is to perform yeah. what, you know, the, the character and the lines and the scenes in as good a way as I can. And that's it. You know, I don't I don't have responsibility for the whole show, whether the whole show works or not. Uh, and that's quite nice when, when as, a, as a stand-up, you know, it's yeah. great because you have all the control of what you do. But also that can be a bit kind of overwhelming sometimes. You're like, God, everything that I do on stage is my choice, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's quite nice to do a play or do a, a script, a TV script, and think, you know, whatever you think about the script, whether you think it's good, bad, or in the middle, you're just going to try and do your bit as well as you can. Definitely. And you can't control anything else. And if the show goes really well, great. 
and you can bask in the sort of reflected glory. And if it goes badly, you, you can go, well, you know, I did what I could, I did my best, you know. And that's quite a nice feeling, I think. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I always say with acting in stand-up that whenever I'm doing one for too long, I begin to miss the other one. Yeah. Um, and I think I do stand-up a lot more because mm-hmm. there's a lot more opportunities to do stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sort of book your own gigs a lot more. Um, so I, I'm always a little bit thinking, oh, it'd be nice to do a bit more acting. But yeah, when I, when I have then done a play for a few months or something, I then, halfway through the process, I'm always feeling a bit like, God, let's get back to stand-up now yeah. and just do what I want to do on stage and I don't have to worry about anything else. So, yeah, for me, the perfect career would be sort of somewhere in the middle of those two. But, yeah, well, it seems like you've already, like, you're somewhat managing that already. You have a nice balance as well, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it can look like that from the outside. I think from the inside it feels a bit more like I don't do much acting, but that's just because acting is harder to get, you know, yeah. and therefore... Uh, also, at the moment, and therefore, uh, you know, if I do two or three acting jobs in a year, that's pretty good going. Yeah. But in fact, in terms of sort of feeling like how you're working, that only covers a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. other fifty weeks, I'm doing stand up, and so yeah. proportionally, I'm doing a lot more stand up. But but acting is, you know, it's a different, it's a different thing. That's great. I am. Um, uh, I was watching a couple well, about a month ago. I was watching um, a, a rerun of uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark oh, yeah. Place, and yeah. uh, I was like, "Oh my god, it's Matt Green!" Because like, <laughs> like, uh, I've watched it like uh, loads of times, but it's the first time like I noticed you just had a line in it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got two, yeah, two little parts in that: the, yeah. the chef's assistant and, yes. uh, and one of the Scotsmen, yeah. the, the Scotchman. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a fun. That was a really fun thing to do, and I knew that that was going to be good. I mean, I thought their shows were amazing in Edinburgh. I saw their yeah um, their uh, live shows were fantastic. So when they were doing a TV show and they sort of said to me and a few other people, you know, do you want to come along and just do a day on it? That's it was like, yeah, definitely. Um, although that Scotchman recording day was quite a challenge because it was, I remember it was being recorded um, whenever it was 2004 or something and it was it was um, a really hot day okay. in the summer uh, in a studio with no air conditioning or anything. Oh, man. And we were wearing these big, heavy, you know, real Scottish sort of kilts and, yeah. and stuff. Uh, and also we all had to wear wigs, big ginger wigs, and loads of um, beard stuff, you know, stick-on beards, and we were meant to be, you know, meant to be on the, the frozen moorland, or whatever, you know, we were so hot, we were all so sweaty, and like every take they had to keep sort of wiping our brow to yeah. stop all the sweat getting in our eyes and stuff, it was pretty, uh... <laughs> and then we watch it, when you watch it, it doesn't look like, you know, we look, we all look kind of menacing and stuff, yeah. but it's in the right way, but it was a... Yeah, it was a bit of a challenge that day. Oh man, uh, I feel uh, the fanboy in me is like uh, just excited for the inside of gossip. <laughs> like, um, we'll, we'll start wrapping up now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, what we'd like to do uh, on the podcast is uh, we have a tradition of uh, getting a live uh, signing of your signature uh, in the book, which is like okay. uh, on on podcast. So make sure right. you're it's what the, right. it's what the, the fans. Uh, it's sign. what they're after. Okay, yeah. where do I? Above do, or below? Do, do, I'll do it above. You know, you, more you, space. Yeah. There, there we go. go. That's what that's what we had to tune in for. There you not, go. Not, not for the rest of it, but just, no, just uh, that, that scribbly sound. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's just going to be a podcast where just just that scribble sound. Um, well, one of these days, that will be the way to prove your identity. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'll, I'll, I'll promise not to steal your identity. That's fine. Um, we'll finish off with this final question. Yeah. Um, has comedy improved or made your life worse? <laughs> wow, that's a big one. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I would have to say that it would depend on when you ask me that question. I think, I think no, I think it's definitely made my life better. Um, but it's, uh, it's my job, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, I think when I started doing it 
I didn't know whether I would be doing it long term, you know, long, long term, or whether I would just do it for a couple of years and see what it was like. I think I certainly when I started doing stand up, I thought I'll give it like a year and mm-hmm. see how I feel. Yeah. And and I remember at the time everyone saying, you know, you should do at least a hundred gigs, mm-hmm. and then at the end of a hundred gigs, sort of assess, see how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. I remember doing about hundred gigs and thinking, yeah, this is I'm quite enjoying this, and this is sort of fun, and I feel like I'm making a bit of progress, and I'm. I started being booked to do slightly better gigs and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it goes in ways. I think, you know, you go through yearly sort of periods and you think, you know, this is a bit hard work now or, or, or actually I really feel like I'm on good form at the moment. And, ah. you know, you do an Edinburgh show one year which maybe doesn't quite work as well as you th- wanted it to and then you think, oh, I'm not quite sure how that's... And then the following year, you maybe have a better experience. And, yeah. and, and I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to pin it down yeah. with a sort of yes and no answer. Yes and no answer because it's like saying to somebody, you know, how you know is your job a good thing or a bad thing? I think everyone's jobs are good and bad, aren't they? You know, they're, they're how you make your money, they're how you spend your time. Um, and uh, I, you know, I still enjoy doing it a lot. But there are definitely times where you, you know, if you look sort of ten years into the future. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the comedy world is going to be in a few years' time. I, th- I feel like the circuit is in a slightly strange place at the moment. I think yeah. um, there's certainly a lot of great um, comedy clubs, and there are some there are lots of brilliant acts. And I think audiences are still stay, you know, staying pretty good for some of those places. But I feel mm-hmm. like some comedy clubs are struggling a bit, and there are probably too many acts mm-hmm. per slot at the moment. Yeah, certainly when you you talk to people who book gigs and they'll tell you there's like 200 people applying for every gig and you think yeah. well that's crazy you know yeah, that, that's exactly. unsustainable it's, yeah you know? totally. um and you know people new technologies and you know the netflix effect and all yeah, that kind of stuff uh, and the youtube effect and the fact that kids now don't really expect to pay for anything yeah you know the, the live experience has become quite an unusual thing on the other hand you know in, in live music terms you know, there are still loads of gigs out there that people go and see, but maybe the number of people making money in live music is probably smaller. You know, mm-hmm. they might be making a lot of money at the top end, but probably at the bottom end there's less. And I think the same is happening in comedy a bit. You know, it's yeah. stratifying a bit more. So I think all of those things put together mean it's it's never going to be a, a a kind of a very sort of secure and stable job mm-hmm. at the moment. But then on the other hand, what is? You know, what is a secure and stable yeah. job? I remember, you know, when I left university, some of my friends went into, you know, finance and stuff. And some of them have gone on, done great, you know, done really well. And other people have just sort of gone, oh, not really, after a few years, feeling quite, you know, like they're not enjoying themselves and they don't feel very fulfilled. And then the financial crisis comes along and people start losing their jobs. And you sort of think, well, who knew what, who knows what a secure job is anymore? Yeah. You know, and and yeah. Um, what the world is going to want in 10 years' time. So I think. As far as I'm concerned, I enjoy doing comedy. I'm, I still think I'm getting better at it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. I, it's definitely not a straight line. You know, you, yeah. defi- <laughs> you definitely don't think, oh, I'm better now than I was 10 yeah. months ago. Because you don't, because maybe sometimes you were really good for a bit and then you maybe feel like you've not quite... But I think generally it's an upward yeah. trajectory, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think it's Richard Herring who's set, talked about in his blog and stuff, talked about how he always looks back every couple of years at how he was two years ago and thinks... Mm-hmm. I'm so much better than I was there. Yeah. But then that happens, that just keeps happening. Yeah. And, and that feeling of like, I'm really good now. I'm, I'm definitely, I wasn't that good two years ago. Yeah. And then two years later, you're like, yeah. oh, I 
wasn't I good two years ago? I'm, I, but I'm good now. And it's that thing like you never get as good as you yeah. want to get. You never, you know. Yeah. But then again, that means that you're... Um, but the moment they go, oh yeah, I'm the same, it means that you're not getting any better. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think the moment that you go, oh, mate, I was better two years ago, is possibly the, the moment to think, oh, okay, what am I doing wrong? And what mm. is... And, uh, but that's not to say, and this is a very long-winded way of answering this question, but that's not to say that your success will keep going like that as well. Yes, because of I think, course, yeah. Because actually, you know, people have moments, they have moments where they have a break or they something goes right or there's a kind of moment where you think, oh, this is, they have to hold on to this moment because they, you know, they've got the, the sun is shining, they need to make hay now. Mm-hmm. But they might not be the best they've ever been but they've got to use that moment. And I think, uh, you know, there are definitely one or two acts who I feel like over the years have perhaps been offered a chance at something and then mm-hmm. have sort of been a bit like, oh, I don't think I'm quite ready yet. Maybe come back to me in a couple of years' time sort of thing. Yeah. And you think that might never come back. Yeah. You know, that you've got to take those opportunities and go with it. You know, you, you, you just because as a comic, you're always aware that you could be better. Yeah. There's always someone better than you. Yeah. There's always a better act out there. There's always someone who could have done that gig better. There's always someone who could have done, you know, could have come up with that material better. But they may not be in the right position to take that opportunity. And I think that's when you, that's what it's, that's why this job is so infinitely kind of, you know, variable. And you don't, there's no, there's no guarantees and you don't know what's going to happen because it could be that tomorrow somebody sees you at a gig and goes, do you know what, you'd be right, exactly right for this thing I'm thinking about doing. Yeah. And I think my experience has, has said that you often, you just have to go for that, you yeah. know, and you have to see what happens. And maybe it turns out that they're making a terrible show, which yeah. is awful <laughs> and makes you look stupid. Or it may be that they're making a brilliant show, which yeah. it takes you to the next level. And yeah. you don't, you, you know, you're always a little bit sort of like, you know, in the lap of the gods for that. Yeah. But as long as you keep, I think as long as you keep working and enjoying it, then comedy will remain a good thing to be mm-hmm. uh, involved in. But, um, it's certainly not a it's certainly not a straightforward job. You know, yeah. it's not a job where you kind of can leave it sort of leave it at the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Your yeah. office is always with you, you know. Yeah. yeah, you are your office. Yeah, and that's and I, I, I do I sometimes envy people who are able to kind of go to work, do a day's work, yeah. come home, sort of leave their job at the but I think also that's probably less common than it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I think actually a lot of people have jobs that they have to be you know thinking about all the time but they just maybe don't enjoy them yeah. <laughs> and that's uh you know you, if you have a fantastic gig and you know 400 people love you you can't call that that's not a job you know yeah. that, that that's that's just fun yeah you know, that, those are the that's that's what we do the job for as, as many people say that the reason you get paid for comedy is not in a weird way it's not really the gigs it's the traveling and the yeah. the admin and all, yeah. the, all the other stuff that goes with it the actual gigs are often the bonus, really. Yeah. You know, they're, the, so they're the bit that make it fun. Yeah. And if I don't have a gig for a couple of weeks, I just get itchy. I start feeling like, yeah. you know, what's going on? Where am I? And that's when that's when I begin to start answering your question, oh, I don't know if comedy's been good or bad for me, because because all the sort of negative aspects of it, all the sort of insecurity yeah. and the sort of instability and trying to work on booking gigs and all that mm-hmm. stuff, that gets harder. But then when you actually have a gig, you like it just reminds you, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing this for. You know, th- these gigs, you know, these people are why I'm here. If I was just doing the admin side of it, I'd have stopped years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's a really perfect answer. Very long so, answer. But no, yeah. but it's, it's great. Um, where can people find you on social media? Uh, I'm on uh, at Matt Green Comedy on 
everything, I think, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and uh, uh, Instagram. Yeah. Uh, my website's macgreen.org. And thank you so much. No worries. Nice to see you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the episode with Matt Green. Uh, I think it was a good one. I I enjoyed editing it. It's very um very informative. I think it's a good episode if you're brand new to comedy and you're interested in learning uh, about the different formulas and uh, methods and tips and techniques you can pick up to kind of use that in stand up. So I think that's I think it's a good episode. Um, but you know, I that's I'm I think I'm biased. So yeah, I uh, this is obviously the outro. Where I'm slightly not very drunk, but I've had a couple of pints. I'm not as drunk as I thought I would be, which could be a success. I am going to have a couple more drinks afterwards. So uh, there might be something at the very end where I don't know scream into a mirror, and uh, you can maybe be witness to that. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening to that episode. Thank you to Matt Green to recording it. And also thank you to the Stand Comedy Club in Newcastle for letting us record there. And uh, thank you, the listener, for giving us five stars on iTunes. Thank you for following us on Drunk Compod. That's both Twitter and Facebook. And thank you for being you. Yeah, thank you. Um, wow, well, I'm not sure if it's. <laughs> I think I'm a better presenter whilst drunk, which uh, you know that's that's. Am I a better presenter, or do I think I'm a better presenter while I'm slightly drunk? Hmm, that's one of the moral quandaries in life, isn't it? It's uh, I think Aristotle wrote wrote about that. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll be back in a month's time. Um, talking more bollocks uh, I've got some cool people lined up uh, which I think are gonna like guys yeah that's uh, I, I speak in American accents now yeah uh, Brooklyn uh, yeah you know that's that's a bit of fun wasn't it um, yeah uh, life's been fun recently I uh, I've been working really hard but not like I find it hard to complain because I don't work like a normal human being I'm just I work hard for a comedian, <laughs> but that is it. But any, not if you do nine to five, you're already working a lot harder than me. Uh, but anyway, I'm gonna go um, and drink myself into oblivion. But thank you for listening. Thank you for being uh, a good little podcast listener. You know, I I think you're yeah. pretty spiffing. Um, here's a thing that happened the other day. Um, I was I I do part time work. At a CCTV place, and I have to make sure the roads are clear from people breaking down, and if they get broken down, I send up recovery. And I was working with a brand new guy uh, called Tony, uh, who accidentally broke my phone. Um, no, no, I'm not holding it against him. But um, he, uh, he, I told him about the podcast, and he's during the shift, the twelve hours long. He's during the shift. At a certain point, he stopped talking to me and just started to listen to me on the podcast. 
And I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not, because he stopped talking to the live actual person, mate, but equally he's listening to the podcast, you know? A download is a download. Um, and if he's listening to this, Tony, can you pay for my phone, please? It's very broken. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, I've been Matt Hoss. This is Drunken Comedian Podcast, and we'll see you next month with probably uh, a two-parter with Tina and Dooyeb. So, hmm I shouldn't have said that out loud because now I'm committed. Uh, We'll see you next month. Uh, Bye. Follow us on social media, etc. Bye.